This is the What Now Podcast. I don't know, something happened when I started writing. I thought, this is what I want to do. This is, this is fun. And uh, the kids loved the music, and we got first prize. And I got uh, the award for best music. And I, I, I don't know, I was just on my way. I knew, I knew what I wanted to do. This is the What Now podcast, where we discuss the culture and beliefs in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in an honest and faithful way in an effort to encourage, uplift, and inspire. I am Mary Alice Hatch, your host. Janice Cap Perry has inspired church members with her music for over 40 years with popular primary hymns such as A Child's Prayer, I Love to See the Temple, and Trying to Be Like Jesus. Join me as she shares the serendipitous event that led to her prolific musical career and what has inspired her throughout her journey. Today, I am here with musical songwriter Janice Cat Perry. Welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me. I am thrilled to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for taking the time to do this. You are a household name. I think anyone in the church has heard of Janice Cat Perry and the incredible musical legacy you have left. I would like to just start by understanding where your love and passion for music came from. It was definitely in my home. It was full of music. It was amazing. My mother played the piano and dad loved to sing. Mother wrote roadshows, musicals, uh, they had two boys and two girls, so we were a mixed quartet, and we sang around the piano so many nights on the, in our farmhouse. My mom and dad actually played in a da- piano and drums in a dance band all the time I was growing up. For school and church, they played for every dance I attended. So they gave the kids piano lessons, and it took for some and not others, and uh, we took lessons from our mom and then advanced to some others teachers that's kind of fun that your parents played at every dance you attended I loved it it was box trots and line dances back in my day that is so much fun and that your mom ended up giving you piano lessons and that went well sometimes that's hard with parents and teaching two out of four worked (laughs) See, I was one of those people it didn't work for. After 10 years of piano lessons, I just threw in the towel. It's never too late. Never too late, right. That's true. But you are a prolific writer, and you have written almost 3,000 songs and released 108 recorded albums. I mean, how did you get started with being a songwriter? Good question. I guess my first introduction was just walking home through the country roads with a friend one night after school, and she just said out of the blue, I don't see how anyone can write a new song. How can you write something that's not there? And I said, well, I think I could. She said, well, prove it, do it. So I I asked my mom if she could help me know how to write the notes down. I felt like I knew how to write the words and the melody, but uh, she helped me in, in that regard. And I thought about, uh, that made me think about songwriting and whether I'd ever want to do it. Uh, I had had two years, well, I'm getting I'm getting a little bit ahead of it. Anyway, I, I uh, took her challenge. 
and I, I wrote a song, and she and her sister and I sang it in a, a trio in church. I wrote up much too high, but she had a sister who could reach. <laughs> I didn't know anything about uh, how high people can sing or anything like that yet. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was my big, very beginning. Then I had two years, just two years of music theory classes and, and playing in the band and orchestra at BYU. So uh, I wrote music for assignments there, had wonderful teachers. They were impressed with, with some things I wrote and encouraged me. I, you know, my, my mom had taught me to love music and my, my brother had a Jack had taught me to love sports and taught me to be an excellent fast pitcher. So when I came to BYU, I had to decide sports or music. And my mother convinced me that music was more of a lifetime, <laughs> uh, something that I would enjoy. Mm -hmm. well, well, that's interesting. So your friend is the one who kind of spurred that in you. Well, for that one song. And then when I went to BYU, I, I thought, wow, I love this. And when I wrote my final uh, classical solo, and I got some very encouraging remarks from my teacher, Quinton Nordgren, and he said, you need to pursue this through your life. Well, I got married after my sophomore year to a nice return missionary, Douglas Perry, and we started our family, so I set it aside, actually. I pitched, though, I pitched softball until I was 40 on different city and church teams and loved other sports. Okay, that's so interesting because I don't think a lot of people know that about you, that you were a fast pitcher into your 40s. Uh, up to 40. Up to 40. <laughs> <laughs> Clarification. So that was probably a fun outlet for you. And then how did you kind of circle back to music? Well, I loved all sports. My brother really taught me well to to love love them and be good at them. So when I was forty, I broke my ankle playing uh, basketball with my nephew. Uh, we were just playing a game of horse out on his basketball court, and I jumped. I tried to make a jump shot, and I came down on his ankle and broke mine. So. While I had my foot in a cast, the bishop came and, and asked me to write music for the roadshow because we would get extra points for originality. And there was a certain ward we wanted to beat. I asked what he, what, why he thought I could write music, and he said, just a feeling. And, uh, yeah, it kind of intrigued me, though I didn't feel confident about it. But my husband got me some manuscript paper and a pencil and found a way I could elevate my foot at the same time that was throbbing. And I, the bishop wanted 15 minutes of music. They wanted the whole thing to be in music. And uh, I don't know, something happened when I started writing. I thought, this is what I want to do. This is, this is fun. And... Uh, the kids loved the music, and we got first prize. And I got uh, the award for best music. 
And I, I, I don't know, I, I was just on my way. I knew, I knew what I wanted to do. It was um, my brother who was in the competitive award, he got, he's an artist and he got best award for the, the props, the art. It's good, <laughs> so, so you both won something. <laughs> that's good, yeah, that was good. That is good. That is interesting because it just almost reawakened something in you. I mean, at BYU, you kind of felt that. And then you had a young family and kind of set that aside. But then once you got the opportunity to kind of revisit that, it reawakened that in you, sounds like. It really did. And then I started writing a lot of little uh, primary songs through that year. And the second year when I was writing a roadshow again, it, it, it was just my good fortune that Merrill Jensen was the stake uh, Rocho director, the the guy that's written all of the, the, scored all the church's films and and done such beautiful things in his life. And he said, I've heard some of your music and it's time to record it. I said, well, I, I don't, I don't know how, or I can't afford it, one or the other. And he said, here's how you do it. You find 10 people who will loan you a thousand dollars for one year and you will pay them back just a little higher interest than they're getting now and I said I don't think I can do that and he said you have to you have to be a little bit bold to get started for ten thousand I could go down to LA and get a rhythm rhythm section section to record your music and then we can come back here to BYU and add all the voices and instruments. And I said, oh, borrowing money is this something that we we don't like to do. But I I tried it, and I found five people that would do that. And my mother was good for the other five thousand. <laughs> so Perfect. I mom came in. Yeah, she did. Uh, I did pay them back, even my mom. And uh, Randy Booth, who was the head of Young Ambassadors at that time, and and had my son Steve in his group, he furnished all the singers and came and did his, was a vocal coach free. So we recorded the album, Where is Heaven? And uh, it was magic. You talk about being hooked. I just thought, this has to succeed because I have to keep doing this hearing what all those instrumentalists and wonderful vocalists made of my music is just thrilling. So we, our first batch of recordings consisted of 5,078 LPs. <laughs> That's all there was then. Right. You know, the great big records that are so, <laughs> so obsolete now. Yeah. And uh, so later, yeah, and almost no one was writing then except Lex Azevedo had written his musical Saturday's Warrior, and people loved that. And since that almost no one was writing, the stores were anxious to have some LDS music. So that really worked to my advantage, too. Uh, we later started making cassettes when they came into vogue. And finally, CDs. And 
that album was just a, a huge success. We had to make an, a, a decision to form a family business and be serious about it, and it eventually came to involve all of our children. That's kind of wonderful that you had that opportunity and that your family could be totally involved and financed by it, that it could be a family business for all of you and that you could have that be such a connection for all of you. Yeah, for for almost 40 years, it was very successful. It's a little harder now. In fact, the people get their music different ways and and, uh, we have a warehouse full of CDs that are obsolete. And and songbooks too. So, uh, we're, I think we're we're done now. But but it's time to quit. Well, I mean, it's interesting because you wrote a lot of hymns. You wrote a lot of these inspired music, and there was a market for it. They were, you know, people wanted that at that time. There wasn't a lot of it then. So you kind of hit that market at the right time. And we do. It was providential for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, how did you get inspired to start writing children's hymns? I mean, you have 10 of your songs in the children's hymn book, and in a poll published in the LDS Living magazine, it was entitled 100 Greatest LDS Songs of All Time. Your song, A Child's Prayer, was number one, and seven of your other songs were in the top 27. So what is it about your music that seems to resonate so deeply with listeners? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure I know, but when someone called and told me that song came in first place, I thought I said that can't be. I know all the wonderful writers and what the beautiful things they're doing because this was much later. And and she said, call up the magazine and see. So so I actually did. I said, this is what I heard. Is it true? And she said, not only did it come in first, it was by a landslide. You know, I was I was just totally encouraged at that time mm-hmm. to to keep writing and just it was wonderful. Well, then you realize the impact that you're having when you're number one by a landslide. It means you know something's going right there, and you maybe need to keep going in that direction. Well, that's definitely how I felt. I would have kept going no matter what because I was loving it so much and just devoting my life to it. My husband left his job and came to start engraving all our music for publication. So that was a big help. He, he we either had to hire someone full-time or, or he needed to come in. And our son, John, just took over our business and to this day has run every aspect of it. It's incredible. Our, our other children were involved in in songwriting and and performing and all kinds of things with us also. That is wonderful. I mean, I love to see The Temple is one of my favorite songs and one of my daughter's favorite songs when she's little. That's the one song I remember her singing when she was really little. I love to hear that. I It means a lot to me. The Temple represents something very uh, tender to me because our, four, our fifth child uh, only lived for about eight days, eight hours, uh, because of our age factor, problems which hadn't been solved quite yet. Mm-hmm. And to me, the temple just reminds me of our ceiling, our temple ceiling, and the fact that he's ours. <laughs> one, we have one safely in the, in the 
The celestial kingdom. Celestial kingdom. <laughs> I had the bar I had the artist Robert Barrett when we left on a mission in two thousand two. I asked him to draw a make a painting of our family. And they and I said I want to include the the boy that died as he as he would sort of fit in the age they are. So he he looked at all their faces and my husband's and tried to draw a comp comp composite. And so I feel like I've seen my boy at missionary age. That is so neat, how he kind of projected him of what he would look like as an adult. Right. And we put him in a white suit. We were all in darker suits. Right. I mean, he's been, he's up on the top tier <laughs> waiting for you. It's a treasure. Yeah, that is. That is a total treasure. I mean, I want to switch gears here and talk a little bit about how you've co-written six musical albums with my late father-in-law, Senator Orrin Hatch. How did that collaboration evolve? He's your father-in-law. Yeah, he is. Well, here's how it happened. Uh, it was very uninteresting and unexpected meeting. My cousin sister uh, died and both both uh, well let me just start over his daughter married my cousin Orrin's daughter and my cousin's sister died and so both Orrin and I attended the same funeral he entered and was shaking hands with everybody <laughs> as they do and he he when he got to me he said oh I enjoy your music then he said, I write poetry, you know, we should collaborate. I was totally caught off guard and I said, uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, that's great. So that was just an organic introduction. He liked your music. He offered his lyrics. And yes. <laughs> and I was in Tab Choir at the time, Tabernacle Choir. And we toured the D.C. area short af shortly after that. And the Hatches invited my husband and I to Sunday dinner. And afterwards, he showed me his impressive book of patriotic poetry that he had written. Beautiful experiences that he put into poetry. I, he said, I would need a crash course in writing lyrics because I know they're different from poems. He, he took it to heart and sent we, we, we talked about it that day, and he took it to heart and sent me 10 sets of lyrics. They, they weren't quite perfect, but we worked together, and he allowed me to make fixes while he learned. We formed a, a sweet friendship through many years, which led to six albums of patriotic and spiritual music uh, recorded here in Utah, and, and he came out for those recordings. Most of all, he became, I'm sorry, a very dear friend to me, and I miss him so much. His funeral was just so beautiful and so fitting for the great man he was. Well, one of your songs was sung at his funeral. Yeah, it was his favorite. <laughs> no empty chairs at our table. And their whole family sang it. <laughs> mm -hmm. It was it was so it's so fitting because he he is on the other side now. 
and they want no empty chairs at their table. And that arrangement was so beautifully done. And even just watching my kids up there singing that, it was so powerful. And I think people in there, there were a lot of prominent people there and they were touched. I mean, they were brought to tears by that song and that's the power of music. It is. Well, I was one of them that was in tears, kind of like I am right now. I got to get a hold of myself here. I know I miss him too. I have a lot of memories of him with his big yellow legal pad writing lyrics down (laughs) for songs. He just loved it. It was definitely his passion. Aside from politics, he loved writing music. He just felt like it was very healing, I think, for him with all the stress and everything he was dealing with to write beautiful music was a kind of escape. Sometimes he said, it is the depth of degradation back here. And why I can come home and concentrate on some beautiful spiritual lyrics, it saves me. Really? I mean, I think it was an incredible escape for him to just focus on deeply spiritual things that have meaning and purpose. And, you know, one of those songs, Heal Our Land, was performed in Washington, D.C. at the National Prayer Breakfast in 2001 and at the presidential inauguration in 2005. So that was incredible. I remember watching that on the platform. I mean, how was your song selected? I mean, how did that come to be? Uh, You know, I'm not sure about that part, but when Orrin and I wrote this song, we were, we both knew in, from our experience in writing that it was something good was going to happen to it. We didn't know what. And so when he was, he was very free to share all his new songs with his colleagues and friends. And uh, we had a black uh a uh, gospel singer who was a dear friend of his, Whit- Wintley Phipps, who came out to record it for us so it would sound genuine. And uh, I don't know how, how, how I got on that program, but somehow it did. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure Orrin had something to do with it. I he don't probably know marched it. right into that office and told them they need to sing that at the inauguration. <laughs> probably. <laughs> I can totally see him doing that. <laughs> Me too. Uh, so, I mean, it, what was it like actually hearing your song sung on a national stage for all of America to be inspired by? Uh, it was beyond anything I ever expected. Uh, I've lo- I, I guess my, my greatest joy is having it sung in the church. In the, in the primary and and in our lot of firesides, everyone knew the songs and could sing along with me. But but I never th- thought of it going to a, a place like that, and and it kind of confirmed the feeling we had when we were writing it that something special would happen with it. It was also performed by the Tabernacle Choir, arranged by Mac Wilbur. So and Oren came out for that performance. Performance that that meant a lot too. Oh, I bet. I mean, you came into songwriting midlife in your forties and became a very accomplished songwriter. So, what would you say to those who aren't sure what their talents are and how they can contribute in positive ways? 
Um, I think some people in their 40s, they think, oh, well, you know, I don't know. I've been raising my kids all these years. I'm not really sure what my skills are. How would I kind of reinvent myself? And you really did reinvent yourself in your 40s. I did. I couldn't. I couldn't. Couldn't play ball anymore. Yeah. I, I certainly can't now at eighty four. <laughs> so, I I guess I when I think of my story, it's just if you have something you really want to do and your heart is in it, just just don't hold back. Try it, and keep trying it. And uh, the fact that we had such. A good response, of course, right at the beginning was because we were writing at a providential time when there was not much music in the church recorded. But it's just surprising where you're, if you just start little and, well, here's what, here's what happened for me. When I started writing, I sent my music to the church. And... I, I said, do you, do you need this music? <laughs> do you have any interest in it? And they said, well, uh, we get so much music. And Brother Moody, who was the cha chairman of the music, said, we suggest you just uh, uh, brighten your own little corner of the world. And if, it's, if your music's good, we'll hear about it. Well, it, 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 that's it. I just... Did exactly what he told me uh, in my stake. I started writing for primary and uh, for the young women. And a lady in our stake wanted, uh, who was our stake primary president, she wanted to start having a little five-minute uh, five temple time in primary every week for that year and ask if I could write a song uh, that they, they would sing every every primary Sunday that year, or, and so I, um, I wrote, I love to see the temple, and, and that's how that song came about, and so, and then I wrote, I walk by faith for the young women, which was, uh, it went worldwide, with Arleth Cap leading the charge, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, helping me know how important that song was, and helping me so I did do what the church said. I brightened my own little corner of the world. Uh, and then when they started hearing about it, I, there are actual, actually uh, s several people who felt the urge to write primary music before we even knew there was going to be a new primary songbook in 85. And I had written 10 songs, and they were all chosen for that book. So really? it was just an, just an impression we had, and I think that's how the Lord works. He prepares things ahead of when they're going to happen, kind of. Mm -hmm. and I was I was dumbfounded. I was so thrilled when I went to to hear the hymn book introduced and realized that the songs I had been putting my heart and soul in were going to be in the primary songbook. So start you know you, you start little and you you hope and pray big <laughs> mm -hmm. and th things happen I guess that's all I can say you need to prepare yourself to to learn a little music theory and and the rules of writing 
and I had done that for two years at BYU, but but never graduated. And it, it just happened kind of naturally to build, it just built quickly through the years. There is something to that. I mean, when you have a divine um, inclination to do something and you really are enlisting the Lord and helping you, doors and opportunities start opening up. If you have, you know, the intention to do it, it's a good intention, you're including the Lord in it, and you have a certain skill set, I think he magnifies that for us and allows these opportunities to manifest. That's absolutely true. I count on it. And after that, we wrote several children's albums, as well as adult albums. And I don't know, things just went worldwide. No one was more surprised than I was. And I think you are a very humble person. And I think when he sees humility in us and an opportunity where our intention is really pure, that we just want to do good for good's sake (laughs) and to glorify God, he will magnify that. So how has writing music kind of been a source of comfort for you throughout your life? You know, the children's song, A Child's Prayer, was written during a difficult time in your life. Can you share that experience with us? Just preceding my writing that, I had I had lost the use of my left hand for playing the piano. It was every time I tried to play, my hand just curled up. My fingers curled up and my wrists pulled down, and I couldn't play. And I I wrote a song. I mean, it was so frustrating to me for what I wanted to do. I just didn't quite know how to how to feel about it or what to do. So I went to over two or three years. I went to forty different kinds of doctors and therapists who all thought they could fix it, and no no one ever could. And so I wrote a song at that time for adults called, Lord, Are You There? Do You Hear My Prayer? And uh, that's, that song was well-received, because that's how I was feeling. I wrote it into that song. Uh, and later I, I felt like, I want to write a song like that for children. They, they, when they pray, they probably wonder sometimes if God is there, if he's hearing their prayer. And so I, I wrote a child's prayer. I, I, it was a singular writing experience. The, the words just came to me, and, and I knew it was good. And I knew it helped me and I, to understand and understand. In one specific time that helped me was much later when we were in a, my husband or I were in a serious car accident at the mouth of Provo Canyon and almost a head on collision and, an, and then a crash against the bridge of bridge support. And I thought my neck was broken, it, it stung and hurt so bad, and I, I couldn't get my breath. and. When the ambulance came, I had to sit up in the ambulance so I felt like I would pass out. At the hospital, they said I needed to, to lie perfectly flat for a scan and for 45 minutes to see if my neck was broken. And I said, I can't do it. I, you know, I might pass out or die. 
And they said, we have to do it. Just take a deep breath and, and go somewhere else in your mind and you'll be able to do it. Well, they started to lower me down slowly. And I, I just thought, so where can I go? And I, the four, the four short, short little lines of a child's prayer came to my mind. I closed my eyes. And I repeated these four little phrases over and over and over and let my, wouldn't let my mind go anywhere else. Pray, he is there. Speak, he is listening. You are his child. His love now surrounds you. And I made it through that. My neck was not broken. It was seriously injured, and I had surgery on it the next day and then began to recover. But that song meant everything to me, and that's what I, I hope will happen with children. And I and I know it is happening as from some of the letters I have received through the years that a certain song came to a child that, that helped them in a certain situation, but it certainly helped me that day. I know. I mean, you were inspired to write that. You felt something about writing that, and it was personal to you. And, and then you were able to even apply it to you in a really traumatic situation to yourself. I mean, it actually helped heal you in that moment. And I'm sure it's resonated with people because it was the number one children's song at one point. And I think we have trials in this life. Everyone's going to deal with something really difficult. And music does come to our remembrance. It's interesting. Like I've had certain things in my life that were really overwhelming and then all of a sudden, without thinking about it, I'm singing a hymn or a song in my head, and the words that I'm singing are actually what I need to help me. It's exactly. interesting how the Lord will do that. Exactly. I've heard, I've heard, I can't even count the letters that have said just what you have said. It's interesting. Music is really powerful. I think I don't remember a lot of written text or things that I read, but I do remember music. It's for some reason it stays in our mind. When something is set to music, it just goes deeper into our soul and has much greater staying power. Mm -hmm. I do believe that. And it's interesting, like I just said, you know, at certain opportune times, lyrics will come into my head and they're the lyrics I need to heal me. And I think our Heavenly Father uses music to heal us. Yeah, I know he does. Yeah, I mean, when you're in performances, sometimes I'll be in a performance and I'll just be brought to tears because the power of what I'm hearing resonates with my spirit mm -hmm. so strongly. Same for me. Mm -hmm. So you are well known for your musical abilities, but many people don't know that you pitched softball for the church and city teams until you were 40. And then you made this pivot into songwriting, which just goes to show that the Lord has his own timeline for us. I think a lot of people get worried, like, what's the timeline and what am I going to do? I know empty nesters felt that way. And we talked about this a minute ago, that people feel like they're not sure what they're going to do next or what opportunity will come up. But the Lord is so mindful of us. And I keep seeing that as I get older. And with this podcast too, I started this podcast when I was in my late forties, you know, it's like 49 years old when I started doing this. And I had no idea what a Good podcast was. 
You know, and it's interesting how the Lord will just use us at certain opportune times to do his work. Um, and it seems like you have had the blessing and opportunity to do that for over 40 years. You know, musical music is such a powerful tool that can be used to build faith. It can bring comfort and it can help us in times of joy and difficulty. Um, I'd like to just move in and talk about how your challenges with your hand, you talked about that briefly, and your two strokes have changed you and your perspective. I mean, sometimes that can be really discouraging. Like I'm doing something really important here that's helping to build the kingdom. Why am I having a setback when I'm doing something important? I've asked that question. (laughs) (laughs) I bet. My hand, hand problem developed one I had been typing at, for students and professors at three different universities where we lived, at BYU and Utah State and Indiana University. And I, I typed, oh, long hours, long dissertations and everything with no problem. And then suddenly I couldn't even control my left hand and I, I, it was over. I couldn't do it. And it did make me quit. I think it's probably the typing that might have caused the problem, but doctors could never figure it out. And so I I quit typing, and I focused more just on writing music, but, but that was a problem too, because I couldn't play with my left hand. Um, as I said, I went to 40 different specialists, including quacks at the end, <laughs> <laughs> hoping to, to find a solution. Every hospital and doctor thought was assured me that they could solve it, but no one ever did. And blessings I had were wonderful, said it would could be better according to my faith, but I guess I did never quite muster quite enough because <laughs> that didn't happen. I did learn a new way to write, just sitting at my desk and or in my easy chair and writing lyrics and having the music take place in my mind. And that, that worked very well. And when I got the lyrics written, I, I just could kind of painfully get it written down on paper. <coughs> Excuse me. Playing very slowly on the piano with, with my left hand and feeling my way. Uh, somehow I, I made it work and I quit playing in, at church or in public because I couldn't do it well enough. But uh, I don't know. It, it, I had my first stroke in 2006 just while writing music at the piano. And I was in the hospital for a week rehabbing and wondering the wondering what I had lost and what I might get back. <laughs> and I, I mostly did over time, but still that hand was just not good. Mm-hmm. So then I kept writing for all, I just did the best I could, found a way to get it onto paper, and then my husband could engrave it and make it look nice. <laughs> so in, in 2019, I had a second stroke, and at this time I was alone all night. I was just watching TV, and I, I felt something coming on, but it just didn't register in time for me to to call anyone and 
<clears throat> by the time I realized what it was, I couldn't call. I tried. I just couldn't couldn't remember numbers or how to push push them on my phone, which was right in my hand. So uh, I was I knew I'd be alone all that night and that I, no one would know till John came into work uh, at ten o'clock the next morning. So uh, when he did, he realized <clears throat> I was pretty much unconscious then and all during that day. So I don't remember much about it. But the next day, <clears throat> I was my I began to be conscious of what was happening, and I heard my four children were there talking to the doctor, who asked if I had a <clears throat> what would you call it a, a advanced directive. Mm-hmm. And they said, yes, I hope they knew, but I couldn't communicate yet. They said, yes, she does, and she wants it honored. So he said, well, she can't speak or move, so we'll just give palliative care. And I thought, wow, that's great. This is a good way to go. And uh, then things started coming back. The next morning, my one of my children was there, and they can't remember which one, and they said... Mom, are you awake? And you have just moved your right arm and your right leg a little bit. And I tried to answer in a scrambled voice. I couldn't speak very well, but I said, yes, I I am awake. And they called the doctor and he said, this changes everything. We get up to the therapy floor on the 12th, 12th floor and we work you six hours a day for speech therapy and physical therapy and uh, you know things started returning and I I could do what they wanted up there and at, at the end of that week I came home just like I did after the last first stroke so your time was not up Janice evidently not <laughs> you're gonna keep writing music <laughs> That is, that's interesting because, I mean, it, it, and that's also evidence of what the Lord has in store for you, right? I mean, you, it was not your time. I have no other explanation. That was the day uh, President Kevin Worthen came and his wife came over to check on me. And I could only walk with a walker and, and couldn't speak clearly. But I thought that was nice of them to come. And then he said, but we're here on official business. I, I said, BYU has decided to award you an honorary doctorate in, in, for service in music at graduation. I said, what? <laughs> I said, how did that happen? And he said, your son John sent us, send us a letter asking if we would consider you. And we happened to be considering it right at that time. And it was obvious that we wanted you to have it. So he said, prepare to speak at at graduation. I said, Kevin, you can hear my speech is garbled. You can see I can only walk with a walker. I can't do that. He said, you've got a couple of months. You'll, You'll probably be better. I said, I've never spoken with a... What, what is it that they... A teleprompter? They, yes, like a teleprompter. Yeah. And so he said, just work hard and see, see I think it will be possible. 
and write your talk because at least we wanted to to post it. Mm-hmm. So I I worried that whole time, and then it was COVID, and the I heard the graduation was canceled, and I called their office and said, "So I don't speak, right?" And, and they <laughs> I'm said, off the hook. <laughs> They said, yes, but send us your talk. We want to post it. And I just thought, oh, another great blessing. Seriously, so, little miracles. <laughs> oh, you got off the hook, but that might have been a good distraction for a little while to get you thinking about that. So on graduation day, I thought, well, I, I wonder how I'll receive the award. Then. And, and President Worthen called and said, can I come over now and present your award in your kitchen? Oh, really? <laughs> he said, we'll both put our mask on. We'll wear gloves. And I said, that sounds perfect. <laughs> so, so he did come over and, and presented there in my kitchen. He was masked and gloved and very cautious. <laughs> and, That's uh, actually a funny visual. In your kitchen with masks and gloves getting a doctorate. <laughs> I send it into the church news because I thought it was so unique and they published it. It is unique. That's probably never going to happen again. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> oh, that's great. That is personalized delivery right there in the kitchen. Turned out perfectly for me. Yeah, seriously. little tender mercy for you, Janice. <laughs> so how has writing uplifting music blessed your life? How have you seen that just be such a blessing? Well, I've had to learn how to access the spirit in my writing, and I didn't didn't know at first, but but I kept learning what how to approach Heavenly Father and what He responded to, and I can count on it pretty much now if I approach Him in the proper way, in humility and and asking for His help to make it what He wants it to be. So. I've heard stories of how my music has helped someone and they mean a lot and it inspires me to continue. Yeah, that is true. When you have that feedback and people's experiences have been shaped around your music, that would be inspiring to keep going. I mean, and it is clearly you're being used. I mean, you look now back in reflection on the overview of your life, especially with your songwriting and what you've been able to do. I mean, clearly you were elevated by the Lord. I've also learned when I'm writing for a church assignment, there is just extra help. Mm -hmm. I feel it so strongly. And, and so I don't fear to accept their assignments now, like I kind of used to. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're getting extra help from, you know, beyond a higher power, beyond the veil, whatever that might look like. I, I do believe that. I think when we're consecrated to do spend our time and talents and everything the Lord's given us to building the kingdom of God, he will enhance our abilities. He will. I know it for certain. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to switch gears into the Tabernacle Choir and what was it like singing, first of all, in the Tabernacle Choir, and singing your own songs? <laughs> <laughs> That's unique. To find myself in the in the choir was very unexpected and glorious. I wanted to try out, but I knew my voice was just 
kind of average, but I uh, I can sight read well, and my voice doesn't stick out. So one day I was in the swimming pool with Myra Ripplinger, who was the assistant director's wife, and I said, I want so much to sing in the choir. I can't imagine how nice that would be. And she, But I said, I just don't have a spectacular voice. And she said, that's not always what they look for. You know, we need blendy, blendy people. <laughs> a lot of them, along with the exceptional voices. She said, just try it. Go, go take the written test. So, so I did, and I passed that. And then they said it was time for my in-person, and I thought, oh, no. No, I can't do that. I, I, I've gone as far as I, I can. Mm-hmm. And my husband just insisted. He took me there. I heard someone auditioning to, through the door from me, be ahead of me, and with this wonderful voice. And I said, Doug, I can't go in. <laughs> Listen to her. And he said, you didn't go this far without going in. So they opened the door and he kind of pulled me through. And they interviewed me and they had me sing. I sing a solo and then they had me sight read and all the things they put you through. And I felt like I did Okay, it's sight reading, but I I just waiting was waiting to get out of there and go home and cry, because <laughs> I was not expecting a call to sing in the choir. When I did receive it a, a, a week later, I just sat there and cried. I was so so happy, still not knowing how it had happened. When I went there the first time, they had me go down with Sister Otley to to have her help me a little bit vocally, which was not surprising. And I told her how I went. I said, tell me how I got in the choir. And she said, well, they don't like standout voices. They like nice ones, but not ones that stand out above the others. We got to have sight readers. We only, we only have one practice on Thursday. We sing Sunday. And she mentioned a couple of other things. And she said, just enjoy it and be at peace. You are a member of the Tabernacle Choir. <laughs> and so I, I did just that. I, it just still seems like a dream. I, I got in late in life, and so I only had five and a half years. They, you can have uh, thir- 30 years, I guess, or is it 20? I can't remember. But I only had that many left till retirement at 60. Uh, when they, The first day they sang the Tabernacle Choir, I was sitting in the middle of the choir and thought I'd died and gone to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I couldn't sing, but I was trying to mouth the words in case the TV was looking. When they sang my song, A Child's Prayer, I just hoped the camera was never on me because I, I really couldn't sing and I was, I was just kind of overcome. Later found out, of course, they had the camera on me. Right. (laughs) Everyone got to see that. They sang several of mine while I was in there. On on the day I was graduating, Brother Otley, or I asked Brother Otley, I had written a song to give to my choir friends as a going away present. When saints unite to sing God's praise. 
And I asked him if I had permission to put it in their music box as a little gift. And he said, let me see that piece. And he kind of sang through it. And he said, we're going to sing it next week at your graduation. Oh, that's nice. Oh. I had a hard time singing that day too, but <laughs> that my, my experiences there are just never to be forgotten. The friendships, the tours, the the wonderful music they sing and the good they do. It was a dream come true. I can only imagine. I remember being at a rehearsal for Tabernacle Choir several years ago. My mother, Nancy Marriott, was the lead soloist with the Tabernacle several years ago. And I remember being at a practice, the practice that they do, and going up and so I could kind of walk back into the stand while they were singing. And I tell you, I was overcome with emotion. It's like you are in a different realm. It's like you are in heaven. It's kind of what you would envision the choirs of angels singing as the heavens open up and you go beyond the veil. <laughs> Boy, I felt just like you did almost every time I sang. Like, can this really be happening to me? It's wonderful. Yeah. And uh, we had, uh, I had, for my conductress, it was Brother Otley and sometimes Craig Jessup. And they were wonderful. And one, and now uh, during our term, our term, President Hinckley said, we don't want to have one of the best, one of the best choirs in the world. We, we need to make it the best. And that, so... Those conductors were retiring, and at the same time, I did basically. <laughs> Mac Wahlberg, the best, the best of the best, has taken it to new levels in in many ways, and they're planning other great things that are ha going to happen in the near future. Oh, it is incredible! I mean, the the feeling—it's not like anything else I've ever heard, and I've heard a lot of musical productions in my life. But there's something about the Tabernacle Choir that literally speaks to your soul. Oh, absolutely! They're so, headed to Mexico soon. They're headed to Mexico. Yes, and they'll be doing singing, singing their weekly show in Spanish. Incredible! Incredible. And so they, I received a, a, a notice from them the other uh, this week that said the choir will be in Mexico on Fireside on on Father's Day, and so we're going to replay the the Father's Day program from last year, and and it contained the Father's Day song that Mac commissioned me commissioned me to write, my father's faith. And they were asking my permission to have it used again. So I'm looking forward to that on Father's Day. That is so exciting. I mean, your legacy continues. I mean, what I want to just wrap up with talking about what do you want your legacy to be? Well, I've thought about that a little bit. I guess I guess I hope. Some of my primary songs, hymns, will be in the hymn book. I, along with 18,000 others, <laughs> have that hope. Uh, they're hoping for the same thing. I hope, above all, that my firm testimony of the truthfulness of our gospel comes through in everything I write. 
I am bearing testimony in my own way, and I hope that will come th come through in my music always. I have to, I have two projects that I almost consider in, more important than anything I've done, and nobody knows about them yet. But uh, I I've written through a ten-year period, forty-four Book of Mormon hymns with a wonderful scriptorian and poet, Bonnie Murray from Denver, from uh, Colorado. And we, we, are, we are hoping to find a way to publish them, but uh, together, and we, we're probably going to need a sugar daddy to help us because our, you know, <laughs> all of the music businesses is, is over for us and for everyone with the, the new way we get our music now. Mm-hmm. But those hymns are, oh, she's written them beautifully. Some have won contest, the contest, the hymn contest in the church and been performed, but, but most haven't. The other thing I've been doing, I can't wait to hope we can find a way to produce it also, is for six years I've been writing hymns based on the conference talks by the apostles the First Presidency, and the women who speak in conference with uh, Stake President David Larson of Dallas East Stake. He, he analyzes the talks, writes beautiful texts, and I set them to music. We published the first two books of them, but haven't been able to afford to do the rest, and so we hope to find a way. So that uh, I... I have just had the happiest life writing this music. I can't tell you how, how happy I am every day to just get up and, and write something. Actually, I'm 84 now, so I'm writing a special song right now for my funeral. <laughs> it's called yeah. One Last Song. <laughs> oh, perfect. Nobody's heard it. In fact, it's not written, but the words are. So, uh, I don't know, I'm just so grateful to have been involved in such a wonderful thing where I could, my testimony can be reach others and, and maybe help and inspire them in some way in their life as they, they have me and my family. My testimony of the church has never wavered. I have always believed, and my greatest prayer is that my Posterity will always believe too, mm -hmm. because having a believing heart is everything in this life. Beautifully said, Janice. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for sharing your testimony through music and your experience in life and what, how you've gotten to this point. I love that you're even writing your own song to circle back on your life and have your own song at your funeral. <laughs> <laughs> That's been kind of fun. <laughs> Your inspiration, you've really had a big impact on a lot of members inside and outside of the church. And thank you for your continued dedication to uplifting and edifying all of us. I'm truly honored to interview you today. Thank you so much. Well, thanks to you, Mary Alice. You're doing a great work. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the What Now podcast. I invite you to share this episode with family, friends, and anyone you think it might help. Just click on that share button wherever you listen to podcasts. 
If you're on Instagram, follow us at Podcast What Now for inspirational messages and highlights from our past and present episodes. We never say goodbye, we say what now. This has been a What Now Podcast production.